back in the woods for episode 45 i believe so of the trapping today podcast i'm your host jeremiah wood and my co-host is cole porter how you doing cole doing good doing good feeling beat down oh not quite a little bit we, we went through the woods quite a bit today but feeling good we were hit pretty hard um we we're we're uh we're feeling a little depressed, a little bit beat down from our losses here on the trout stream. But first, we'll go into that a little bit later. But first, let's tell you about our sponsor of the podcast is Cots Brothers Lures. This Trapping Day podcast episode is brought to you by Cots Bros, K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S.com. Those guys have uh, Kyle and Kellen Cots. They have a full line of trapping supplies. Great people to deal with major supporters of trappingtoday.com and the trapping today podcast love having them along so check them out you can uh, make an order sign up for their newsletter you can check out some of their books and dvds uh, kellen Cotts is a really good coyote trapper if you're looking to learn more you can check out his black book of coyote trapping and the dvd on the flat set it's called the flat set fix uh, those are both released recently so check those out. But anyway, we are driving out of the woods right now. We're about as deep in the woods as you can get without getting closer to civilization on the other side. Yep. <laughs> in, End up in Canada. In, in Canada. And uh, we, we, we went out and spent the day sort of setting, setting out boxes on my Martin and Fisher trap lines. And we kind of combine that with a fishing trip. So we like to fly fish small streams for brook trout here in northern Maine with three weight rods. And we found this one about we found this one two years ago, to about two years and two months ago. And it was unbelievable. You remember the first time we fished it? I do. I remember. We pulled up, pulled up to the bridge first thing and looked off and where uh, road crosses it and there were trout right there and um yeah i think we probably caught what do you think 30 trout i know we, from the bridge yeah i know we caught 30 for sure it, it may have, we may have had to go 150 feet or 200 feet but we we yeah. caught at least 30 trout there so i went back there after we discovered that spot by the bridge most of the fish were five inches four to six inches probably yeah they were smaller that day by the bridge but that's where you know anybody else would fish it. And what we've learned is, what I've learned is, when you get a quarter mile off the road, you do not see another fisherman or a sign of a fisherman in years. And it was pretty cool because I went back that weekend and I caught over 50 trout in three hours of fishing, and they were all like over six inches long. It was the most unbelievable fly fishing in a stream I've ever had. So I proceeded to fish that stream almost every weekend all the way till the end of the season that year and it was un unbelievable. That's actually part of why I ended up setting my trap line out here because I got a little familiar driving back and forth this area and I was looking at this stuff and I thought, geez, this, this a guy ought to be martin trapping here and I'm far enough out that I can, you know, there's probably nobody else trapping. Turned out there was one other couple guys that were doing it but I figured you know I'm coming out here to fish I could set boxes out ahead of time and everything so so I did um, something's happened between then and now 
Yeah. Well, you put a lot of boxes out. <laughs> what, happened in the, what happened in the stream? Oh, the stream's not doing too well. <laughs> well, we've had a couple of years in a row that were uh, really warm and dry. So the stream, I remember that day, the first time we were there, there was quite a bit of water. Um, even in some of the spots where the fish were able to pretty much cover the entire stream. It wasn't just in little pools. And now there's hardly no water in the stream. It doesn't even look the same, so. That was considered a drought year. 2016 yeah. was considered a drought I, year. I know, and there was water here quite a bit. 2017 was worse, and this year, 2018, is, I, I, I just couldn't even, I couldn't even picture a stream, that stream looking like it did today. And I fished here twice earlier this summer. I, I, we texted back and forth, and I sent you some pictures. And uh, in June, it was good. It was, it was really good for a brief period. It wasn't 50 fish, but it was like 20, 20 to 30 trout. Some good. The size quality was back. 17, it had been down a little bit, down quite a bit. And I came back, and the water had dropped more. And we hadn't got rain that whole. Like we got a month without rain and it wasn't all that good and i was getting a little nervous and then came back and we haven't had we've had another month with almost no rain yeah there's not very many trout left in the brook from what we saw today there's probably 10 percent of the water as there was two years ago i oh, I, I, I believe that yeah it's, it's that significant so there was pools there was we caught we walked we probably walked from the mouth there we probably walked about two-thirds of a mile probably up from the mouth yeah and whereas you before you would have a you, every pool would hold trout and the riffles and runs in between would would also hold trout um, there was one pool that we caught fish in yeah there was a pool what was it four or six feet deep four to six probably yeah, it probably was yeah. probably four feet it was underneath a bunch of blowdowns and uh, from up above, we were able to throw dry flies into there, and we caught a few small trout. Yeah, so it was pretty bad, and we, we hiked out and, and uh, went back to the truck, and we drove to that bridge where we initially had caught fish two years ago and done well. We knew there was deep water there. We saw trout earlier in the day over there, and we caught a couple right just about at dark in at the bridge hole, but, you know, we got beat down. It's it's kind of tough you can't when mother nature decides that it's just like trapping mother nature does something to you you just have to adapt and react to it and um, I'm just trying to accept the fact that hey I'm not gonna have 2016 fishing and next year is probably gonna be it's gonna take time for the population to recover but it is what it is so Thank you for excusing us with that diversion and a little bit of off-topic conversation. I, I like to keep things to trapping, but uh, let's talk. Let's get back to trapping. Let's talk about the Martin and Fisher trap line here. Uh, I had a little over 60, I had about 60 sets, um, and you saw probably 15, 20 of them. Yeah, probably. And close close I, to a third. I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on, on in general, like what what you had thought initially and like what your impression was what you saw going through and looking at those sets yeah so out here there's a lot of there's quite a few hills in this area they're not huge but hills with hardwoods on them 
so um, there's a lot of clear cuts and uh, areas where they've cut off everything and planted spruce so kind of figured the martin would be feeding or working along those edges uh, so it's basically you've looked for spots where where there's some thick either old growth hardwoods or some thick softwood trees leading up to those or places where martin might feel safe crossing a road uh, there's a lot of some a lot of open areas around those cuts you know the woods is cut back uh, you know 30 to 50 yards in a lot of places so it's unlikely the martin will be running around out in the open even at night so yeah so what are your thoughts on like how I pick locations I want to know I want to know how you might have picked locations differently because I yeah, I want to think about I, this from well, a more critical perspective well I think a lot of it's a lot like what I would have picked because I you know you set some stuff up high maybe higher than I would have but I think that's I think that's probably a good thing. Remember that ridge I pointed like out? I, said, I was like, I didn't know I wanted to, whether I yeah. wanted to set that, and I caught a Martin and Fisher in exactly, that Exactly, yeah. and I, for some reason, I'm drawn to those low areas with a brook going down through that valley with a cedar swamp. Drawn to that for some reason, just because it's thick. Um, and I might think that's where the Martin would be, but, yeah. um, but you've set in those areas as well. So, I think... And then uh, we were setting out some boxes today and I kind of suggested maybe setting a box out in the open a little bit. And that yeah. would be something that you wouldn't have probably done in the past. That was kind of interesting, yeah. So we we went through some, some locations. We put in some boxes where I had pulled them out last season. And we, I had some, I had like seven boxes, six or seven boxes left and there was a road system that I'd passed. You know, there's just so many different road systems out here. It's it's unbelievable. You can't cover anywhere near most of them. You yeah, can't. A good problem to have. Yeah, I mean, yeah. 60 sets does not get you on very many road systems here. So there was one that I just, when I was setting up the line, I was trying to keep my sets spaced out pretty evenly. And this one, the way it went, I, I just didn't have time to go and drive to the end of it and I didn't really know much about it I just thought whatever well I was back here in the spring looking for shed moose antlers and I was kind of stopped at a couple of my sets and checked them out well I went down that road because I wanted to know what was there and I saw some pretty good habitat so today when we were driving by it I thought why don't we go up here and we got six seven boxes and we got to talking and we we're like why don't we just set these out and I thought it would be kind of cool to see how to try and think our way through so the last episode we talked about how do you select locations for Martin and Fisher given all of the things we know about them all the things we've learned the things that we don't necessarily know and we want to learn are they up in the high ridges are they in the hardwoods are they down in the draws and the softwood and the cedar swamps are they near the spruce plantations? How much um, how much debris do they need on the forest floor? How much vertical and horizontal cover do they need to escape from predators, to find prey? Just a million things. So that, let's just, you know, let's play around with this a little bit. 
So we get to, we start driving up the road and we see this nice spot and we, there's this big clear cut and then we get to the edge of it and there's a buffer strip between two clear cuts and it's nice mature hardwood and a little bit of softwood in it. So um, what was your suggestion there? I, we, drove, we started driving by and I said, I'm gonna set one. I, I was gonna set right in the center of that strip. Yep, and I said, well, maybe try right over on the edge of the cut. Um, kind of in the open it was kind of a, a it was a big clear cut with um spruce planted yeah they're like these ones yep. probably like yeah, 10 so probably, 12 feet yeah, tall some spruce planted but they were kind of spread out along the edge and there was like an area where they didn't plant right up close to the uh to that buffer and it had just been thin yep yeah this is probably the summer yeah it was yeah, the summer because those summer. the needles were still on those yeah trees so they went in there and thinned all that cut out all the uh the hardwood that was growing around it and stuff like that um and so, softwood, but so yeah there's this like open trail and i'm like i'm looking at it and cole says well they're probably feeding on the edge right of on that the edge, yep. And I'm just like, well, I look around, there's not really any cover. And I'm thinking, well, you know, Martin's probably going to get picked off by a hawk if it comes out here. And Cole's like, eh, they may, you know, they may come out, it's right on the edge. And so we put it there. Yeah, well, from where they thin, there's a lot of um, debris laying on the ground. And I'm just thinking that maybe there's mice in that. Absolutely. And they'd be coming yeah. in and out of that, that uh, regrowth that uh, plantation drain to get some ice. So if they're trying to stay near the cover, they'd go right past where that box is. At least pretty close to it. So we tried it and I, the, the big thing that was going through my mind then was, you know what? It might not work, but it might. And yeah. if, if I didn't try it, I would never know. So set it out I'm gonna text you as soon as I go check it the first time whether it's got something in it or not so if, if it doesn't get anything fine next time around we will set it further in the woods yeah you can always move it that first check even uh, I'll leave it a few checks just in case <laughs> grab it and step in the woods a few feet but if it catches something like I told Cole I'm gonna try it somewhere else to see if there's a pattern there and maybe you know that's how you learn you you try something different it works or it doesn't if it works you try more of it to see if it's going to continue to work in other situations and all of a sudden you learn something and then you say well so guy says well why did you trap out in that spot well because over time i've learned that they tend to travel on that edge yeah and i'm not really sure yet if if the martin are getting mice that are coming out of that and maybe into that buffer and they're catching them on the edge in the woods even maybe by you know 20 feet yeah or are the martin really coming out in that opening and going into that open area even though there's big gaps they have to go through i'm wondering if they actually are going into that at night or if maybe they're not i don't i don't really know and i don't, I don't know, know if there's been a study on that that really talks a lot about that trying to figure that out so yeah, I don't recall the. There's a pretty big radio telemetry study on Martin up, actually up in this area, not this specific one, but in northern Maine in general. Yeah, northern I think I, I think I know where you mean. And they, what they showed was that the Martin would come to the edges to feed 
but they would they would never there was a certain distance in an open area that they would never go out beyond the okay. trees and and if they did they would cross they would do they'd just be like off for the next county okay just yeah. trying to take it off and they wouldn't spend very much time there um, and of course I, I believe there was there's also another study on predation and the martin that spent more time in those open areas were more susceptible per, to predation okay. and i think they may have been like dispersing young martin that were looking for new habitats and they yeah. tended to have a much higher mortality level so so there's there's a risk there but there's also like you said all that structure um, all, all that debris and stuff on the the ground there is is mouse habitat and and you would expect there'd be a lot to feed for there there's so much complexity to it yeah and i wouldn't have you know suggested to set out in that cut any more than you did right on the edge yeah but i think you were really only that martin only has to come out four feet to get, four or six feet to get out of cover before it would go in that box so i'm wondering if maybe they would feel safe coming out into that but yeah and and i think a fisher wouldn't really care probably not especially a big one and that one was a big box that was a yeah. 160 box i think it you know fishers are a little less susceptible to that predation by hawks there's a lot more bumps on this road than i remember <laughs> the, the direction we're going i don't know if that matters but yeah so so i think you know they i see fisher walk along the open roads for long long distances they don't seem to care especially the big fishers so so there's that too then we set we set a few more on that road. What was it? You remember the next one? Oh, the next one we set. These was the next one. I think it was on the very end of that other okay, end. Okay, yeah, that, that was the one where the you set. That was a point where we thought we thought the old bearbait was. Yep, and that's the one with the hard hardwood tree that kind of turned. Yes. So so we did another little experiment. It's fun having another person there because you kind of think about weird things and it, there was there was the road intersected two clear cuts one on each side of the road and the buffer zone between the clear cuts kind of went perpendicular to the road but there was kind of a little offset there yep and so what we're thinking is martin are going to be traveling through that buffer zone because there's mature wood there's more habitat and cover for them to get away from predators and they're if they're moving in that direction which you would you see on the other end of that buffer that you thought was really pretty exciting oh at the bottom of that valley oh a swamp big cedar, swamp. big cedar swamp at the bottom yeah it was maybe what 600 yards back or 800 Pro yeah maybe, maybe a little less yeah quite a ways under the back but yeah they would probably hunt along the edge of both of those cuts and that's kind of where that you were going with that they would have to right cut across yeah. at that angle across the road well and after that we were even thinking well if if it wasn't so far to walk you could walk across that cut and set on the edge exactly. of that swamp so so what we're thinking is okay they're moving through this buffer and if they're moving down into that toward that swamp there's a little there's a little offset there where they they kind of they hit the road and they got to go a little bit if they're heading down that valley they would have to go to their left by like 50 yards or something and 
where the way the edge of that cut worked, there was kind of a little spot, and there were there were there's a small grove of like spruce trees in there, and it was just like a perfect cutoff location where they would instead of having to walk all the way around the edge, they'd go right through there. We got in there, and there's a little game trail. Yep. And so it was like, man, this is gonna be good. So that one. That one was a kind of a no-brainer. We thought, let's try, let's try this and see if we can kind of use the terrain and the the vegetation and everything to to funnel those Martin in. Yeah, that looked like a pretty good spot. Then after that one, I don't know which one we went to. Was it was it the one where you set the box up on the high stump where the tree blew over? That's the one I can remember. But there might have been there might have been one more. There was one other one because there was two big spruce or fir trees together in a bunch of hardwoods around them. Yep. I think it was just after that bear, okay. old bear bait trail. That one was a place where there was a big hardwood buffer that hadn't been cut for a long time. There were some pretty big mature like yep. maples and birches and beech. So that one was, I don't know what it was. It was like, remember there was a little hill there? You started to climb the hill and it was on the left and there was, it was the edge of this opening and there were these, for some reason I noticed these two spruce trees that were out. It was on the left again. Jeez, I don't, I don't know. That's why you uh, marked them and I'll took to, notes. I'll have to pull it up on the <laughs> GPS. But, but yeah, I, I remember those two trees and I went we went into it and it was just kind of this nice open area. I, I, I believe that was the the next one before the the upturned route yeah but we'll check on that so what about the route well, we, didn't, we didn't necessarily agree on that one no was, i don't know i the way the tree fell down the it took the roots up with it uh, probably what six feet in the air five i'd say yeah five, six yeah at least that quite high so we got it in the spot and there was a little ditch uh, off the road and it had water in it and, yeah, and and this area had some blowdowns, in but it had it was pretty mature forest. There was this little dip. It was a low spot, good travel way. Looked like ideal Martin habitat, right? It did. It looks good in there. That's a good spot. I like how everything's blown down in there. We talked about that horizontal cover. Yeah. So a couple times Cole was mentioning the Martin that he watched from his bear bait, and he saw like every single tree that was either like at a at an angle like tipped over or blown down the marm would go up go along that tree and investigate it and go back down yep so that in in that's a hunting tactic right yeah they definitely was hunting and just trying to go up and i think he's they're quiet too i was amazed by how quiet it was really you know, there was really no noise it made the same amount of noise as a red squirrel if when it was coming in towards me if not less um, and once I got on the trees, there was, I was, some of the trees that were turned over were only probably, honestly, five yards from me. That Martin came, really? that Martin came, I was in a tree stand that was probably 12 feet off the ground, maybe 10, and the Martin came within four feet of the bottom of the stand. Wow. So, yeah, and he would go up to the, up on those trees, and he hung out in that area for a few minutes before he left, so. Yeah. But he'd go up the trees and look around. And uh, yeah, just keep going up and down them. Quite a few different trees. So this location had all that, all the trees like that. Yeah, about and halfway, you know, 45 degree angle. 
and we that there's this one big tree with a huge root wad and the tree blew over and like Cole said the root wad was like six feet up off of the the normal ground level and so I looked at that and I said I'm putting my box right on top of that root wad because it's in the middle of all of this debris and stuff it's ideal Martin tra- travel way ideal habitat I'm right in the center of it and it's on a high spot that they're gonna see oh where'd you want me to put it I think at an angle on one of the trees. Yeah, th- you're yeah. right. There was a really steep tree, and you're like, oh, I've seen Martin run up and down this stuff. Yeah. And I was too stubborn. I and didn't want to do it. It is hard because the way our these boxes are made, um, unless you create a system to hold your bait, your bait will roll down and hit your trigger. Oh, yeah. You, it roll it's right hard. With you, with your, yeah. uh, your uh, Connie pans, it would roll right out. <laughs> I, I actually yeah. had that happen to me. I had bait roll into the trap. So it was touching the trap, and I didn't really want it like that. Um, but you could stick some hardware, like some thick hardware, heavy-duty hardware cloth in there, probably. And There'd keep be it ways in. to keep it up in there. But, but why go through that do, effort? Yeah. So my thought was, they're gonna smell the bait, they're gonna smell the set, and they're gonna they're gonna be looking for it. Yeah, I think Martin are curious when they see something that they've never <laughs> saw before, or something different, like a box. Um, or a bear bait barrel, they always seem, especially the bear bait barrels, they always seem to run right over to it and jump up on it. Yeah. Like, even if they don't eat anything, they still do that. So. Yeah, and you sure. remember we talked about Noah Frost and, and painting the boxes white. Yeah. Huh? Yep. Yeah. And as long as you are okay with having other people find your boxes, then uh, <laughs> that's a good idea. Probably. I, I'm not ready to pull that trigger, but man, it, that, that seems. Uh, it makes sense. Well, of course, I put flagging tape uh, right above all my boxes for that visual appeal. I learned that from the video Martin Trapping for Maximum Dollars. Yeah. Guy back in the must have been in the early '80s or something. The guy up in Alaska was a Martin trapper. Um, he always said, "Do you want to have the Martin's going to smell your bait or lure, and you're going to want to make sure that you can help him locate it because he." may have a short attention span you may smell it and then ah whatever i'm not hungry that's another thing i'm wondering if they don't really go put their nose on the lure like you do a caster mound set you can place the caster four inches to the left or six inches to the right of the center and that beaver will put his nose right on it there's videos people have taken of that with trail cameras going right to it putting the nose right on it and for this type of scent seeing it's it's more of an attractor like skunk I don't think the Martin's gonna go put his nose right. right That's on a it. very, very interesting topic. And is there a lure that a Martin would do that with? There might be. Yeah, it would have to be food-based, or maybe it's even glands off another Martin. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I. That's an, if we can figure that out, we might be onto something. You listen to <laughs> an episode, a few episodes back. I talked about that a little bit. Yeah. There's. Russ Carmen is the legendary lure maker, trapper, extraordinaire, and that book, Musk, Mystery and Misconceptions, is probably the best book I've ever read that has anything to do with trapping lure. And he talks about the, the instinct of an animal to actually have to put their nose on that lure. Oh, and yeah. That is one of 
the attraction, it, that's one of the major draws that a, a really good lure has. It, you know, a lure, like for instance, at a dirt hole set. Yep. You want that animal, if that there's something at the bottom of that dirt hole, you want them to not stop digging, and a coyote not stop digging until it gets to the bottom of that because it just has to put its nose on that. Or yeah. in some cases, it's got a rub on it and, yeah. and roll around on it. So there's there's something to be said for that, and that's why I'm kind of exploring well, this whole gland lure. It's stuff. like that uh, the lure I talked about. I put out in front of a camera last week. Yeah, yeah. I put some lure out. Uh, it's a well-known Martin lure. You can say it. It's, yeah, it's uh, gusto. It's a that's a really good yeah. popular lure. Yeah. So I use some gusto. That's uh, Tim Caven Minnesota Trapline products. Yep put some of that out on a tree and I was just you know checking out a new township new area that I was thinking about trapping in a little bit and I've heard of other people getting uh, pictures of Martin and Fisher uh, in that area without more so just on deer trails and stuff like that so I figured I'd put a couple cameras out um, check it out and uh, actually I put the war out and during the daylight big bear came by probably a, <laughs> you know 300 plus pound bear and he he stopped he walked over to the tree and he pretty much he got on his butt and he hugged the tree and he put his face right on it and, and he was there for four minutes four, for four five, minutes four or five hugging minutes. the tree he was there right around that tree and he actually <laughs> hugged the tree in one picture with his face like his nose right on that lower rubbing on it so, so what was that he was that I'm gonna guess it's the skunk in it, but it you could be so? the other scent it too. It could be, yeah. That has other it's stuff. It's got in a it. lot in it. So if it, I see that as a good sign. It, we know it's a good lore, so a lot of people use it. So yeah, that's really interesting. That um, what is it that what is that urge that an animal has to to really have to want to smell something like? Yeah, he knew there was no food there. He know where knew where it was, and he still hung around. You know, he didn't. Yeah. He didn't leave right away. He stayed there with it for a while, and he had to rub his face on it. There's something instinctual about that. Yeah. And just like, you know, a woman wearing perfume and smelling perfume bottles. You know, it's just, I don't know why, what it is about certain scents that just draws you to want to smell it. Yeah. That's yeah, um, interesting. But obviously, it works in some cases. In some cases, like, ah, oh, whatever, you know. And obviously, you didn't have any Martin or Fisher going no. to, to that. Um, well, that was, that was a bit disappointing. Yeah, but, but, I mean, it like could have just early been, in the year, and they might not be hungry. Exactly. Or, or they're just not interested. Sometimes they're just not. No. You know. And, I mean, I didn't, I thought about bringing in a couple uh, chunks of beaver meat and wiring them to a tree. Just because I was afraid that maybe I'd miss, wouldn't get pictures of them even if they were right there, because they might circle the scent yep. and just never come in front right. of the camera. Um, but I didn't. Um, I'd, that'd probably be something I'd do if I was really trying to be serious about doing that. Yeah. So the white boxes, the potentially some, something to attract them. Um, oh, I wanted to talk about one thing. One of the other reasons I put that box above at the top of that root wad six feet up is that if I, I think a natural instinct of a predator is they they want to get to the high point and, and I agreed with that that Martin probably would see that big 
big huge root that stands out in that area and the 25 yards all the way around that that's what stands out yeah so he probably they probably would run over and climb right up on top of that and even if even if they didn't really see the box because my boxes are like they're brown they're like tan or brown colored paint I, yeah. whatever green summer green is whatever i had available but it was kind of trying to blend in a little bit even if it smelled the lure smelled the bait but didn't see the box it would want to get to a high point to say where is that coming from and it may just walk right up to the box mm. so um, yeah so so that's what i did there um and i think in a lot of cases going up the tree might be the martin trying to get up a, get a better vantage point yeah i think i'm sure it could be i think it was when they were that that Martin, he could hear the squirrels because it was around that bear bait, and there was a lot of squirrels around there because of the bait. I think that's why he came in. He could hear them. They were making a lot of noise because they knew I was there. Yeah. Stuff like that. So. The other thing is, they there may be a difference in the way they act in hunting mode versus scavenging mode. Yep. You know, if they're if they know there's prey items around and they're just hunting, they're gonna be. You know, like super quiet. They're gonna look for certain vantage points, try to sneak up, or try to. Yeah. You know, but if if they smell like if they've been going into a bear bait for a few weeks, and they know there's a a carcass there or something, maybe they'll approach that a little differently. I don't know. Yeah. So that was the root wad, and then was the next one the end of the road? Ah, uh, probably was. I bet it was. So we went to the end of the road, and sometimes I, I go on, I do a lot of dead end roads in my trap line. A lot of people, actually probably half the trappers up here, do not do that. They, they do loops. They won't go on a road unless they can, they don't have to backtrack. For good reason, I mean, you're backtracking, you're not gaining anything. Yeah, and up here there's a lot of area, like in areas where I'm trapping a little further south, I have to use those side roads. I don't really have a choice. I mean, yeah, I, you I don't can, have as many I can do roads a, to choose from, right? I can do like right? a, a 15, 20 mile loop, but that would be it. Like I couldn't go find another 20 mile loop. Yeah. I could, it'd be hard. So it's like, I really need to utilize those. Up here, they can get away with making, you know, big loops. Yeah. And this one is kind of on a loop. You could, like I mentioned earlier we, uh, with you, you could make a loop out of this, but you'd be missing out what I see on those side roads is you get to the end of that side road and that road was created to access timber that there was no other roads near. Yeah. So you're getting into a spot that is, um, th that the end of that road, there's no other access point for another trapper or for you for from anything from yeah. another road. You're basically getting as deep into the woods as you can get. Yeah, and it's, I think it's good to kind of explain this area, what these roads look like too. These these side roads, some of them have alders that are hitting both sides of the trot. They're grown in quite a bit. Yeah, it's been a long time since. What do you think? 15, 20 years since they've cut on some of these. Uh, the, I saw the latest. I saw on the they got signs on the different plantations okay, was yeah. 2006 okay. so that's 12 years yeah so a so probably 12 to 12 to 20 yeah would be a good guess so a lot of these roads are grown into the point where you can you don't have to go in the woods real far to feel like it's probably okay to set the trap as far as martin not wanting to come out near roads yeah this yeah th that's a really good point because a lot of people don't 
<laughs> don't quite uh, uh, think of roads the way we do. Yeah, we're we're riding down a road right now, heading out. That's this is like a main road. Yeah, this is like a main road, and there's grass growing a foot tall in the middle, and with dirt on dirt in around the tire tracks. So it's not traveled a lot. And those side roads, unless there's a bear bait on it, there won't be a vehicle on it all summer long. Oh. The bird season, October 1, when bird season starts, there'll be bird hunters on them. Yeah. But, uh, and in the spring, there'll be guys like me looking for moose antlers. But in between the f second week of May and the first of October, if there's no bear bait there, there's nobody there. No, we could have been the only people that come out on, if there was, it wasn't bear baiting season, it could be, well, it could be a week before someone comes into this Oh, area. if we broke down, we'd be screwed. Yeah. <laughs> well, we could sit here until, you know, well, right now, if they're not bear raiding out here, we could stay here for weeks. Yeah, time <laughs> to get walking. Uh, without a forester or anyone coming through, so. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, uh, th these are pretty remote uh, back roads. But the I got to the end of this road, and... I always like to set the end of the roads because, like I said, you're you're kind of you're getting a little deeper into the woods that hasn't areas that hasn't been disturbed and everything. So we start walking out. We walk quite a ways from the end of the road, and we got into this big mature hardwood that hadn't been cut. It was kind of cool. It was like the end. The road ended at this clear cut, and but at the end of the clear cut, nothing had been touched beyond it. Yeah. So we went in and we we start climbing. All of a sudden, the road where the road ends, it drops off like right down the side of this hardwood ridge. It's pretty steep. Yeah, pretty steep. So we went, how far and what, down we go? A couple, well, 150 feet? Well, yeah, this is the thing. Because what I usually do on the end of these roads is I, when I get to where it drops off, I'll set right there, right at the top, yeah. on the edge of the drop. And my theory has been, well, it's high, it's visible relatively. The scent can go down the valley there, they can follow it. it it's just, I, I feel like higher, you have a better chance of intercepting predators. Well, Cole convinced me that he looked down and said, well, why don't you go down there? They're more likely to be traveling. Along the edge of that hill, maybe. I mean, like halfway down. I don't know why I think that. But so I've... we went probably another 100 feet or so down that side of that hill and we found a spot and I got down there and I thought, you know what, this is a, I think this is a better spot. So that's another one we're going to find out this fall. Yeah. And that was, that's in the open. I think there's a, that's a good spot. There's, you know, 40, 50 yards on either side of that trap where an animal will see it. They'll be yeah. able to see it and go check it out. But I think, I think that's kind of important too is with these boxes, maybe use them to our advantage a little bit and make them, you know, a visual attractor. They can see that box. Hopefully they'll be interested and just, they don't know what it is. It's different to them, but it's not scary probably. So they'll go over and at least look at it. Right. If they, they smell some beaver meat or something like that in it, maybe they'll decide to try to get it. Well, the, the researchers out west, when I was going to school at Utah State University, I met some grad students that were working on coyote research. And coyotes are probably the most researched uh, fur bear in the world because of all of the depredation out in the west with sheep ran sheep farmers and, and cattle ranchers. And there's big money in coyote research. There has been forever and there still is. 
and they were one of the guys was telling me about his project and he was kept talking about this he called novel objects novel objects and I was like what the heck are you talking about and, the, and a novel object is basically anything in in the environment that is not natural yeah something new that has been placed there and he was looking at how coyotes investigated these novel objects another kind of parallel is Craig O'Gorman is always talking about salient features and that's something that sticks out on the landscape it may not be novel but it may be like this huge boulder in the middle yeah. of a, a otherwise just like you know nothing else so they tend to investigate those things and what did you notice on all my essentially on my box other than the chewing part which we'll get at but the, those boxes oh they're tipped over oh yeah like, yeah most of them were tipped over and and i told you that when last year when i put them out i just set out boxes i didn't put bait in them or anything i was just getting them out of the truck and getting them out here and i went back a couple weeks later to pre-bait and 50% of those boxes have been tipped over by bears. Yep. I, I assume bears because they're pretty well, good sized. That's, that's another thing is to mention that we have a lot of black bear here. Like yeah. your trap line area has a lot. Well, we saw it was a lot. Yeah, and that's not. It was like broad daylight. It was like four o'clock. We saw three or four o'clock. We saw that bear. And there's other areas where I'll ride around for, you know. And we're in the middle of bear season. Days. And we saw that bear days and i said i should have had my rifle with me <laughs> yeah, i wouldn't have got shot at anyways but days and days where i've rode around other other areas of the state where you don't see a bear up here um when we were working in the past in the spring especially we we saw what eight and two weeks i think yeah we saw spring. a lot of bears um yeah. or two two years ago so yeah we're and it, the woods is super thick here so when you see one it's kind of you don't see it very long uh, no it's not it's hard to compare to other places but um, those bear it's always there's a lot of bear if you put a camera on a trail up here you usually get a picture of a bear just and like it moves just the box being there was something new and the bears yep. would knock it over and i had one drag one off well a couple of them got dragged off with no bait in them or anything yeah. almost any time i've Oh, a bunch of times, probably almost half of the times I put a trail camera out on a trail, a game trail, a bear will either put its nose right on it or it will knock it off the tree. Yeah. Um, so even no bait, no scent, no lure, if they see it, they they pick that out from a long ways away. A bear does, especially yeah. a bear. Um, so you make a good point. Use the boxes to our advantage. Um, so we, they probably do help to get animals in to investigate them. Then the problem is they won't go inside of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, it makes sense because when they get to it, they they know it's not normal. It's not. They haven't saw those out in the woods all over the place. Um, just doesn't. They don't feel safe putting themselves in a small hole like that. Like, I, I mean, made of wood or yeah, wire, it especially seems weird. the wire. They yeah. they don't want to go in. Have you thought about ways to make them more comfortable around the boxes? Well, I know that... Uh, like, I've talked about using that gland, trying yeah, to use a you gland can, lure. you've talked about that, or maybe using other things, like maybe jelly, other food food sources at Martin. Is, they eat berries throughout the year, so if you put some of that at the front of it, they like, they'll like the scent, for sure. It might make them feel a little bit more comfortable yeah. around the en entrance to that box. 
on the 120 boxes, they're going through a 4x4 four four or less inch opening into a dark place <laughs> trying to get the bait, so. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the, I think the gland lure, something to tell him another mustelid has been there, whether it's a weasel, a fisher, or a martin. Like, hey, somebody else went in here and got food. Yeah. It must be okay. Or someone put food here. Or, oh, there's another martin in my territory. Yeah. It's game on. You know, I'm going to go figure, I need to stick my nose on his gland. To, yeah. Is sent to try and figure out who this is because I get to get back and try to chase him down and get him out of here. So that could be, you know, that could be part of that getting them in the box. Um, so, so there, there are a thousand different things that go into trying to figure all of this out, um, and and we're a long ways from getting it all figured out. But we're learning. We're 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 going along as we as we go and trying to pick up information from from everything that we experience. Uh, one piece of advice that I have learned over the winter, and I will pass on to other people doing this, is you may want to think twice before leaving your boxes out in the woods all winter long. We had a little bit of issues with, uh, with some chewing action. Yeah, some of the boxes, uh, the ends of them where the bait was, was chewed completely off by either a bear or a porcupine, so. Yeah, they were, I had, we, I get two, we're going home with two of them that are not usable anymore. A lot of them just got, probably the majority of the boxes had some chewing on them. I think so. And, and yeah. a lot of them were just like on the edges and the corners and Which stuff. I thought was, that's pretty interesting. That's, it is interesting that they'd be chewing it at the wood like that. That's wood that's, yeah. it's not like it's live, Fresh wood. I'm so. thinking porcupine. Yeah. And and the other thing is, you know, the bait, I had preserved bait in a lot of those. So there were salts. Yeah. They might be whether like it was sodium benzoate or it was pure salt. You know, and I I had fish oil in the boxes. There, there may have been some maybe the porcupines were getting trying to get us a source of salt and we're chewing and chewing. Maybe one of them looked like maybe a marn or something was was chewed and chewed and chewed until it could get that thing open and then it, it, it's the only reason I say that is because when the hole got the size of a Martin's head it stopped chewing yeah so, so I'm thinking it got to the bait and and uh, filled up but it's just ironic that it if that was the case that animal would rather chew through that wood an inch of wood then oh, go around sometimes. 18 inches away and figure out how to get into that box. Yeah, sometimes I wonder if these Martin and Fisher even even see, know if that opening's see, there. Yeah, they even see it because last fall I had one. I know you probably other people have had this happen. I had a wire wire box and the bait was kind of up against that wire in the back, and that animal had bent that wire and chewed and tried to pull little pieces of that meat out through. Yeah, it, so it never went in the box though. It probably could. didn't know that it could. No. It, had, it it's it really is goes against your natural instinct that I have to go away. It's like doing a maze. I have to go away from the food to get to the food. Yeah. You know that's just not ingrained in their DNA. They've never had a case where that. <laughs> yeah. Where that was a requirement. And the way you have done yours with all the wood all the way around with just holes for scent to get out. I think that, that in, in that case that would be really good. 
to have that way. So they couldn't get a taste of it. They'd have to work it until they found the hole. Yeah, we talked about maybe maybe putting screen on the ends of those to, to allow them to know more that the bait was there. I, I don't know if I will or not. I think the ones that were... If you wire it onto a down tree that's sitting up off the ground, I think yeah, those then, ones it would I'd feel exactly. better about that. Absolutely. Or or if you Yeah, I think that's probably the way to do it. Because if you put it down like in a hollow log or something, there's no point because they're not gonna see the back anyway. Yeah. But if you had it in a tree, the, the wire would allow the scent to disperse a little more and but you'd also already direct them. Yeah. And, some cases they're gonna go up the tree they're gonna jump over the top of the box walk across the top and go to the back yeah but there's it's more likely that they're gonna start going up the tree and go right into that open yeah that martin's head especially martin he's, it's low his head's low and he's gonna look right in through and he's gonna be able to see all the way through that's the main reason why yeah exactly that's the main reason why i've talked about the wire on the back of these wooden boxes is the fact that they can see all the way through the box possibly now I've also heard, was that there when we went by? Yep. I've also heard that trappers say, like, Martin like to go into, they are attracted to dark areas. There's a guy from down east, an old trapper, that, that used to say that. Um, and then I've also heard that theory about seeing the back, seeing through the back is also, you know, makes them more likely to go through. So, I, like, the, the whole tunnel effect, mm. I, I don't know what... What we know that? with mink that are oh yeah the same yeah. family they like they'll go through the people using uh, small pipe sets along brooks those work well or, yeah they like to go through a hole in the edge of the bank stuff like that so maybe Martin are similar I don't know so overall what do you think you think think this is this line's gonna produce some Martin this year and some well, Fisher well this year we have we have we don't have very many beach nuts. Um, we had a low berry year, so they probably haven't been eating as well as they did last year. Well, I know they haven't ate as well as they did last year, so um, I think the few berries that were out this year and the few nuts that are going to drop this fall, like beech nuts, there'll be a lot of competition for those. So hopefully, hopefully it will be a better year. I hope so. I think my initial thoughts are there aren't going to be as many Martin in the woods. Seems like survival's been fairly low the past few years, but just anecdotal. There's no no real hard data behind that. Yeah, I don't know. But the ones that are there are going to be hungry. So I'm thinking the strategy of moving is going to be productive because you get in an area, if there's a martin within a certain range of, of your trap line, you're going to be likely to catch them. Uh, relatively quickly and then you move and you're into other additional martin home range brand new set of martin home ranges so that's kind of the strategy we'll see if it if it plays out yeah hopefully hopefully it turns out to be good because i don't want to be getting messages about you not catching if i especially in the traps that i had influence on (laughs) (laughs) well it's gonna be tough because if if I'm if I'm going checking 60 sets and going over 60 a couple times in a row, um, I'm gonna have a hard time being motivated to keep on trapping. Well, you'll you'll keep trapping, I'm sure. Yeah, maybe beaver and muskrats. Yeah, well, the good thing about the beaver and <laughs> muskrats, you can't mess. No, you can't, those, you can't mess those. Those up. are we'll pretty hard those. to miss. I love I love that part of it. Is is you just can't. 
it's so easy to find the sign and make the sets and they're just there. They, it's not like you're always gonna catch one in each set, but if you put enough out and you do it right, I mean, yeah. you're going to catch them. Yeah, it, it, it really is. I mean, it's all about scouting and finding them. And it's the same and, with raccoons. I mean, we don't really trap raccoon much. No, but you, you know, you could see a set of tracks and you know, I mean, the trails, the, Martin yeah. are difficult. They don't leave any tracks. You might have scat in a tree once in a while. There's, there's just no sign. They have set. They use such a wide variety of habitat. You just can't until there's snow on the ground. You can't scout. For I don't them. think even if you did see them, I don't think there's a whole lot of patterning them. No, I don't think so at either. all. It's not like, you know, like I said, a coon. It's like I mean, last other fall. than you know you're in their home range. Yeah. That, but that's, that's it. Yeah. That home range could be a square mile. It could be. It could be. Even, could even be larger. a little more. Yeah. Yeah, where a lot of animals, it's like uh, the muskrats, the raccoon. Uh, they, if you see them go through that spot and you set a trap there, <laughs> they're gonna, I did they're that last back. fall. I saw a coon, um, and he was under an apple tree. I stuck a, a dog proof under there. And the next morning, I had him. Nice. He's coming back to the same spot. I, you know, good chance of that. Same with the muskrat. If there's a good run going. Well, we know where their houses are too. Yep. Same with the beaver. You, yep. You're, you're setting. You can't miss them. Yeah. They have to go through a certain area to go to where they're getting food. So. And sometimes there's challenges with that if the run is really big and you have a hard time narrowing yeah, it down. Our laws are harder here. But generally, they're they're much easier to pattern. And even like today, we saw we saw a couple sets of coyote tracks. We saw a coyote scat. And if we were trapping coyotes out here, we. We know where to set. It could take two weeks uh, to catch those before they came back. But yep. we, but you know, we're gonna catch them if you're here long enough. You know they're there in that general yeah. area. Martin, we're just kind of guessing. But no, you're not. There's really nowhere. It's not even possible. I don't think to look for sign. The only thing you, I think winter. you could do is the whole trail camera thing. Yep, you, you could do that. I mean, winter time's easy, but by then, by the time you got snow on the ground, you're partway through trapping season already. Yep. So, um, and and our snow that time of year is so unpredictable because sometimes it'll snow and it'll melt that same the next day in yeah. November, and other times you'll get a it'll snow and you'll get a, a it'll get a little warm and then you get a crust right away and you don't see tracks or or it'll yeah. be like an inch or half an inch and in the open it melts and the, in the woods it's a little bit so you really can't you can't it's hard to pick up tracks and. I've been out in the woods, you know, working in January, and it's no problem. You can see Martin and Fisher tracks easy when you got a couple feet of snow on the ground. Yeah. And even the oh. Martin, the Martin, if, even in the snow, if they end up up in the tree, there's a. You might walk right where one went. You might not see it. If he was up in the tree moving along, he was not leaving tracks on the ground. So. Yeah, and then when you do get two feet of snow, they're under the snow. Yeah. A lot of times they yeah. don't. They don't pop up. That too. <laughs> Very often. But. Well, anyway, so so, that's it. That's the Martin line. I'm glad it, you got a chance. You're the only one that's ever seen it. Yeah. Um, it's pretty cool to take you along, and, and hopefully it works out. And the truck hasn't broke down yet. The fuel pump or something's been going goofy on it. Yeah, we were down uh, putting a box in and it started uh, acting like it was going to stall on us. So we had to run up quick and take off. 
yeah. and it's done that like three times since then we're climbing a hill and all i'm got it right to the floor and it's barely going but yeah it's come out of it we're, we're mostly downhill now we're like 25 miles out now and we'll be on pavement so yeah um see i wanted to talk a little bit about uh oh geez we've been going for quite a while i think let's let's give a little recap i think we'll probably go on going long enough here that we don't need to get into some of the topics that we'll discuss in the future episodes but uh, a couple by the time listeners hear this we will have I'll have done the episode on Stan's Array and kind of the whole Alaskan wilderness trapping uh, stuff Uh, I read Stan's book it was uh, it was called Carry On, and it was about his life uh, moving up from Boston, Massachusetts, into the wilderness in Alaska, and homesteading, and starting a you know building a cabin, flying into this remote area, just mm. incredible adventure. And uh, you had mentioned it a little bit. I was yeah. Did, didn't he go to Canada first? He did. He went yeah. to British Columbia. Yep. And then he ended up over in Canada. But it was. It's definitely an interesting story because of how rough he had it. Oh, basically, oh, no money, no food a lot of the time, no way to feed his, his sled dog that he was using to trap with, stuff like that. Eating so, the sled dogs. Eating sled dogs and using their... Oh, there's a bear. There are moose. Their fur. might be... Oh, it's oh, a moose. That's a big moose. That's a bull. What is it? Oh, yeah. Small bull. It's a small bull. Yeah. Yeah, spike board. Or a little bigger than that. He's a fork. Yeah, I see I see forks. Yeah. yeah. There he goes. Alright. Just another moose. See him every day. Out here there's <laughs> it's funny, every time we walk into a box, anywhere up moose here, sign, moose we're crap. talking about oh look, moose trail. Yeah. Just everywhere you look up here there's uh browse and moose sign, so so Stan, Stan was a tough guy, hard worker. I mean, just, just the drive that he had to, to just keep going, working, all the. I don't know. You you didn't read the book, but you heard the you you watched the YouTube videos. Yeah, I've heard a couple hours of that. Uh, him talking. He was interviewed. It basically, oh. yeah, it was an interview like 20, 25 years ago, I think. Yeah. And it was pretty much this guy there were there was a guy that was interested in Stan's life and at that time you know he was probably 40 because I think he's in his 60s now and and guy was interested in his life up to that point and was going to do a documentary so he came into Tanana and they went up to his cabin on the Tozy River and he filmed them and he just asked him questions and he just Stan just went on and he I think it was 10 hours worth of tape yeah, I think I have, I've listened to probably two hours of that, maybe three. And if you read the book, it's almost identical to the tape. Okay, yeah. It's it, it's pretty cool because the 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 YouTube videos are like listening to an audio book of. Oh, I would definitely <laughs> carry on. Almost. I would suggest looking that up and listening to that. That's, yeah, that's definitely worth. Yeah, and check out the book um, if you like reading instead of listening. But it's it's pretty awesome. I mean, you, you've thought about going up there. Well, yeah, I think I think a lot of us do that are into the trapping thing, and from Maine even because you know we 
Maine isn't a huge state. We're lucky up here, this part of Maine, there's millions of acres of unorganized yeah. area. Three no just this block is three and a half million acres that we're in right now. Yeah, and we're lucky to have that, that we can And that doesn't even include where you trap. No, and all that, those are townships down there that have no homes in them, only a few camps too, so. And each township is 23,000 acres. Yeah. I mean, it's down just, there there's multiple townships connected just where I trap that are like that, so. Yeah. But I mean, it's nothing to compare to Alaska. Because Alaska, I think, I think it took me a while before I realized how big it was. <laughs> I, I still was, don't. I was older. <laughs> and I think now I've kind of got a, a grasp of how big it is by looking at either acreage or parcels. Yeah. Looking on the map or looking at the map. The best way to do it is look up Alaska overlaid onto the United States, the lower 48. Oh, uh, yeah. And you put that in the middle of the lower 48 and just look how big it is. It's crazy. It is massive. And, or even look on the map and look where Fairbanks sits and how much Fairbanks is not that far north when you look at the state. <laughs> yeah. You got that area. Well, up like where Haimo Korth is. Yeah. That's massive. North of Fort Yukon. Yep. Yeah. Massive yeah. area. You could take weeks and weeks to get up there if you just had a canoe and were lining up, so. Yeah, the, the trouble, of course, is Stan, Haimo, they all caught it right before it went bad. Yeah, yeah uh, they, they saw that, though. They, they're lucky that... The late 70s was basically the time, the last chance. I think... Uh, Stan went there in 73 or 74 and Haimo was like 78 he went in Anwar yeah and that was right before Anilka the Alaska National Interest Land Claims Act I believe yeah. and it was basically where it, the state was split up into state federal and uh, Indian or native lands and once that was split up and there was ownership on those all of a sudden you could no longer go in the woods and build a cabin anywhere that yeah. you wanted to. And and that that kind of erased the whole dream. I mean, you can kind of do something similar now. There's places that you can stake. They have remote cabin sites on some state land and stuff, but it really isn't like what it was. Well, I think some of them have rules where you, you can't trap out of them. Isn't yeah, that? there's yeah, weird. There's... And then there's some of them that are like, where the area is, everybody, they can only be in this certain area and, and there can be like 20 other cabins well, there. another thing to put a line cabin out i think you have to prove that you're making income off of it so you have to go out there and trap for a year two or three before they'll give you the permit and, and to do that you gotta make a plane so. to do that you gotta make sure that you're not on somebody else's trap line that too yeah and i mean te Tired. technically there are no registered trap lines but out of respect for people, it, there's kind of unwritten rules. Those there. guys are in it for money. They're they're trapping hundred miles. I think most of the guys are trapping seriously up there, covering some ground. So yeah. So anyway, it's it's fun to dream about, and you know, who knows? Maybe maybe someday one of us or both of us will get up there. But. Uh, for now, we we got it pretty good. We're not complaining yeah, too no, bad. We're, we're lucky as far as living in the lower 48. I feel very fortunate to live where I am. Uh, but I'd love to get up there someday and at least at least go out on a trap line and see it. That'd be neat. Yeah. Well, when you move out there, yeah, uh, I'm I'm gonna be right behind you. 
So basically what I've, what I've always said and heard people say is it's all about what you make of it. There's people that are miserable in Delta Junction, Alaska, believe it or not. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and there's people that are happy as can be in some of the worst circumstances that you ever imagined. So, it, you know, it's all about your attitude and, and making the best of, there's good and bad in every place you're at. So, yeah, I agree, we're in a good spot. Yeah, we're, we're lucky to have have some ground like Even this. though we complain about the trapping regulations and the landowners cutting too much wood and everything else, we're, we're all right, we can't complain too bad. So that's probably going to do it for this episode. Thanks for tuning in and joining us here out on the trap line. And it's great to have you here. Thank you to Cots Brothers Lures for supporting the podcast. And uh, go ahead and support them by checking them out. Uh, get to their website, cotsbros.com, and uh, make an order. Get some stuff. Get your trapping supplies. The season is coming soon. Um, you can always contact me, jrodwood at gmail.com. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, I love hearing from you guys, especially new listeners to the podcast that just discovered it. It's uh, it's always great to hear from you. Love to try and answer questions, uh, whatever I can do to help you out. Um, I, I would love to do that as well. Um, oh, one other thing, Cole. Trapping lure. Trapping long lure. distance call. Trapping today, long distance yeah. call. What did we see today when we went to the yeah. first couple of sets? It's pretty amazing. It's been, how long has it been? It's, it's been, been almost a year. We're coming been. up on it. <laughs> 10 months. Yeah. So we went into the first set um, that was, we so pulled it out in what, first week of December? Or, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that hasn't been lured since sometime in November uh, of 2017. So we got there and there was, um, the lore was still there. It's still there and the and second we, could we touched smell it, it a little you bit. could smell the skunk, you could smell it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's good stuff. Definitely want to consider trying it out. It's, uh, it, it definitely stands up to the, to the rain. I was amazed and, and yes, we've definitely. been in a drought, but this was three feet of snow and then the spring melt and the rains all the spring and summer. It's pretty amazing that, you know, that I think it's really, you could see that grease base that was still there. Um, yep. Obviously, you don't expect any lure to last for more than a few weeks anyway, some a few days, but that was pretty cool to see that that it was, that lure was still right on the branches that I dabbed it on. Yep. And, and when you, like you said, when you, when you separate it out a little bit, you could smell that. Um, so it's it's good stuff guys check it out um if you don't want to buy it from me i'm cool with that i'll tell you how to make it i'll tell you exactly what um, ingredients to use i think everybody should be trying some sort of a grease-based call lure on their lines so until then thank you very much and keep on thinking trapping talking trapping and we will catch you on the next episode